travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. Many of you probably know that quote is from Mark Twain. Jim and I found it to be a good place to start this episode of Should I Fly? This time focused on the airlines and as they provide us with an extraordinary opportunity to easily and cheaply see the world and broaden our minds. As we discussed in the last episode, airports may be where we enter the magical portal, but it is the airlines that bring us to the other side. In this episode, we'll dive deeper into the functioning of the airlines, the people who run them and who work there, and the aircraft they fly. Those who don't ascribe to our portal metaphor may just see planes as a way to get from A to B, and, you know, and that's just fine. But consider the fact that airlines connect regions. Roads and trains don't connect Zurich to Singapore, or Geneva to Montreal, or New York to Rio. Though activist Greta Thunberg was able to use a racing yacht to get to New York City via sea to speak at the UN, most of us don't have that opportunity. It is the airlines that connect the world. COVID has tested the resilience of the airlines. There's now the real risk of losing what connects us. So let's take a look at them. The planes themselves are engineering marvels. But what about the men and women in charge of them? Why does someone become a pilot? We asked Captains Andrea Ufer and PJ Alsop. It's a good question. And I think to answer fairly, we have to time travel a little bit. And uh, that's back in the 60s. And I remember I was an eight-year-old kid in 1969. And three things happened very interesting in 1969 that have also been accessible to me on my parents' black and white TV. That was Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin's first moonwalk. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And the first flight of the Concorde. With 12 tons of test equipment on board, Andre Durka took Concorde up to 10,000 feet. She was almost... And also the first flight of the 747, all in the same year. I always knew that I wanted to be a pilot. My dad used to take us to Manchester Airport and we used to sit in the car on the top of the car park and watch all the takeoffs and landings. And I was fascinated by that. I also remember from our garden, we saw the space shuttle once which was on the top of a 747 going into Manchester Airport. That amazed me. And I remember flying little single-engine planes out of Manchester Airport. And above me, I could see 747 jumbos. And I was just thinking, one day... And that was my dream, one day to become a captain of a 747. And I'm just one of those really lucky people that is able to do their dream. But it isn't only the pilots who find working for an airline interesting. In the most recent Universum survey of most attractive employers in Switzerland, Swiss International Airlines ranked third, just behind Google and Rolex, and ahead of big brands like UBS, Nestle, Microsoft, Roche, and McKinsey. Working for an airline may be interesting, but is it promising? In the last 20 years, we've had the shock of 9-11, the closure of European airspace in 2010 due to the Icelandic volcano eruption, 
and now the COVID-19 pandemic. Do pilots worry about the future of aviation? Will people stop flying? No, I don't think so. My personal point of view on this is these are shocks. I wouldn't even say black swans because a volcano is a volcano. We have more volcano and a pandemic will be around in the future. But I think these are short terms. Uh, shocks. And my assumption is that we won't talk about this in 10 years from now. This is what we all hope for. Still, not all are enthusiastic about airlines. Between passengers and investors, there's not much love lost for airlines. Several were teetering at the edge of bankruptcy even before COVID. Why does someone create an airline Julian Cook is an aviation investor and founder of multiple airlines, including Flybondi in Argentina. Julian, where did your interest in aviation come from? I don't know. <laughs> It's really something from my youngest age, as I can remember. I've just been fascinated by the industry. I remember my father used to ask me whether I want to go for my birthday uh, dinner or whatever, and I used to say the airport. He would hate it because the food was disgusting. <laughs> whether it was Fly Babu in Switzerland or Fly Bondi in Argentina, you've always focused on short-haul, point-to-point airlines. Why? I think it's the only business model, if you look at aviation, that's been consistently profitable apart from COVID. Southwest Airlines is the bit of the grandmother of low-cost travel, point to point. And it's basically taking that whole industry and taking a new approach, simplifying it. And that's basically the business model that works. The reality is a lot of these airlines, the low-cost airlines, have been fantastic for investors. If you had invested in Southwest Airlines in 1980, By the year 2000, I think it was the second best performer on the New York Stock Exchange. The airline industry is big and complex. Today, there are over 5,000 different airlines in the world. 5,000. And they differ a lot. The giant, American Airlines, had more than 130,000 employees, $46 billion in revenue, and almost 900 aircraft before the pandemic, while tiny People's Vienna Line had just one plane and a single 20-kilometer route. Every day, the United States FAA Air Traffic Organization provides service to more than 45,000 flights across more than 29 million square miles of airspace. 5,400 planes are in the air over the United States at any one time. Worldwide, in, for example, May 2017, there were an average of almost 10,000 planes in the sky somewhere. If the sky were a city, it would have more than 1.2 million people living in it, on average, at any given time. As you already heard briefly from Julian Cook, the airlines compete in different ways. There are the big ones, like American Airlines, British Airways, China Southern, Delta, and Lufthansa. Some still operate like national carriers, carrying the flag, if you will, like El Al, Swiss International Airlines, or Air France KLM, hoping for national loyalty from their citizens. In the last decades, alliances between airlines have become more important to cover the globe without needing a massive number of aircrafts. And then you have the low-cost, short-haul, point-to-point airlines like EasyJet, Ryanair, Southwest, and Wizz Air. And there are, of course, nuances even in these broad categories. 
I'm not today a big fan of EasyJet as an investor. And I think it's a very different business model today to Ryanair or to Wither. And you have the same thing in the US. You know, Southwest today has become definitely not the most low-cost provider. You've got airlines like Spirit, like Frontier, which are the ultra-low-cost model. So there's really a variety of low-cost business models. When EasyJet was launched, we marveled at how Stelios, the founder, had figured out how to get all of us to the airport on time. There was no seat selection or preferences for boarding, so we all showed up early. He increased the number of seats in the plane. How? There was no hot food served on boards, thus no galley and no first or business class cabin. You know, it, it sounds trivial, but when I went to the catering company and said, I want to sell coffee on the airplane, I said, we don't have a way of selling. Nobody has done it before. We don't have tills, we don't have methods of Measuring them, we can't sell coffee. I said, let's find a way of selling coffee. He basically knew how to make money by spending as little time on the ground as possible and filling planes to the maximum. Capacity utilization as a strategy. It's not quite the same strategy today at EasyJet. Profitability for an airline also depends on who flies with them and how they seduce that market segment. A Bloomberg survey of 45 large businesses in the US, Europe and Asia shows that 84% plan to spend less on travel post-pandemic. A majority of the respondents cutting travel budgets see reductions of between 20 and 40%, with about two in three slashing both internal and external in-person meetings. We also learned recently that ABN AMRO, the big Dutch bank, is aiming to halve its air travel from 2017 levels over the coming five years. Noel Quinn, CEO of HSBC, said he is going to reduce his travel by half post-COVID. One senior investment banker was quoted as saying, flying out for a one-hour meeting and coming back, these things will disappear. I think there will be a small decline in the near term of what I call intercompany business travel. So, you know, big companies traveling around the world going to internal meetings. I think that's all going to move to Zoom. That was Michael O'Leary, the well-known CEO of Ryanair, speaking on the FT's due diligence forum in April. Perhaps because his airline flies only short haul in Europe, he is less interested in business travelers. Ryanair flies to 240 destinations in 40 countries with an average fare of 40 euros. Patrick, maybe for Michael O'Leary, this isn't a huge problem. But according to consultancy Trondent, for airlines like American, business passengers represent 75% of an airline's profits, despite only being 12% of their total passengers. So naturally, some airline bosses are worried. Are there still opportunities in the airline business? What would it take to start an airline today? And would it make sense at all? Jim, if you wanted to start an airline, let's call it IMD Airways, what would a plane cost? In 2018, the giant 850-seat Airbus A380 had a list price of $400 million. Rumor has it that in 2021, Airlines are paying not much more than 25% of that. Not bad, no? Patrick, now you know that I am very tight with money. So what if I decide to buy a used aircraft for IMD Airways instead? You're in luck, Jim. 
Earlier this year, Emirates was trying to sell one of their Airbus A380s for a bargain price of just over $40 million. Of course, it was almost 14 years old and had almost 50,000 hours of flying time and over 6,000 flight cycles. 14 years old sounds like a lot, but what is the realistic lifespan of a plane? When do I need to decommission it or maybe sell it off to be a cargo plane? And by the way, what is a cycle? Ah, you see the opportunity. The lifespan of an airplane depends on the cycle it completes. Every time the plane takes off and lands, when the plane is pressurized and then depressurized, is a cycle. If the aircraft spends its life traveling to Australia from Los Angeles, for example, then it probably has one cycle every one and a half days. So you can expect up to 30 years of life, maybe longer, depending on the quality of maintenance. Aircraft that do short hops of four to five cycles in a day have a shorter lifespan. My cost of setting up and running IMD Airways isn't just the cost of buying or leasing planes. I'll have to maintain them, the cost of which ranges from $400 to over $2,000 per flying hour. When I add in fuel, which is typically 20 to 30% of an airline's total expenses, plus crew, insurance, etc., I'll be paying out over $4,000 per flying hour. This is an expensive business. We heard Julian Cook earlier saying that short-haul airlines can regularly make money. But we've all read about airline bankruptcies and state bailouts. How does Willie Walsh, head of IATA and former CEO of British Airways, see it? My attitude has changed over the years. I can remember doing an interview when I took over as the CEO of Berlingus in 2001, when I was talking about, oh, this is terrible. Life is dreadful. This you know, awful crisis. And, and actually, I was, I was getting quite a sympathetic hearing from the uh, interviewer. About an, an hour later, Michael O'Leary is doing an interview, and I remember listening to him, and he said, this is great. He says, this is the best opportunity I've ever had. He went out and ordered, uh, I think it was uh, 100 or maybe 200 Boeing 737s, because he could see airlines that were in crisis, and he could see an aircraft manufacturer like Boeing now all of a sudden faced with the situation where many of its customers wouldn't buy their aircraft. So he saw it as an opportunity. And, and this really woke me up, you know, People often talk about every crisis represents an opportunity. Don't waste a crisis. If you look at Ryanair or Southwest, two excellent models of airlines that have been consistently profitable until this particular crisis, a lot of it is down to attitude. It's down to the attitude of the management team. You know, I grew up in an industry where we accepted boom and bust, where we accepted that there were going to be good years and bad years. You then meet business leaders like Herb Kelleher, who challenge that and say, why? You know, why should I accept that? Just because that's what happened historically doesn't mean it has to happen today or tomorrow. Michael O'Leary, Ryanair's CEO, pulls no punches when he addresses subsidies. Here he is on World Travel Market London in March of this year. In the case of Air France KLM and Lufthansa, there's enormous challenge. The state aid is really going to fetter their ability to lower the cost base. The state aid has come with so many restrictions on pay cuts and you're getting rid of overstaffing and things like that, that I think they would be very challenged going forward for the next five or 10 years. The balance sheets would be very challenged. Now, they will also attract more government protectionism and we will see more and more government protectionism. I mean, they will emerge out of this crisis with much greater and higher, more inflated cost bases 
than IAG, Ryanair, uh, EasyJet and others who have been forced because we don't have access to state aid to really suffer some considerable pain on the labour side on policies and with our airports. So can an airline be profitable? Yes, it can. Will it always be profitable? Not necessarily, because, you know, you will face crises such as this one, which just go beyond anything that is within your control and your power to address. But it does very much depend on your attitude. And my attitude changed back in 2001. And uh, since then, I've always taken the view that you have to do what's within your power. You always have to do. You can never relax. You can never stand back and say, oh, you know, it was inevitable this would happen. Nothing is inevitable. You have some control. At times it will be 100%. At times it will be 1%. Yes, not all years are alike. Good years should cover for bad years. That is a topic we have not explored deeply enough. One has to wonder what the airlines did with their profits during the good years. We know that in 2019, American Airlines spent $1.1 billion on share buyback. In fact, Patrick, from July 2014 to December 2019, American Airlines alone spent over $12 billion on stock buyback. That is over $12 billion that did not go into airline R&D or buying new, more efficient aircraft. In April 2020, the Washington Post noted that the big four U.S. airlines had spent over $45 billion buying back their own shares. Then, during the pandemic, they asked the U.S. government for $50 billion in bailouts. Something just doesn't seem right here. In May of this year, Warren Buffett defended his decision to sell Berkshire Hathaway's airline holdings, telling investors that he thinks U.S. federal officials may not have bailed out the U.S. airlines if a deep-seated investor like himself had maintained a big stake in any of them. This is logic we can all understand. In 2019, there were almost 40 million commercial passenger flights, and in 2020, this dropped below 17 million. What industry can survive a 60% drop in customers? Global airline revenues for 2019 were $838 billion. In 2020, it dropped to $372 billion. Southwest Airlines alone lost over $3 billion in 2020. You know, I hate to uh, end the 49th year with uh, a record loss for us, but, you know, even Southwest isn't immune to this pandemic. In July, Gary Kelly, CEO of Southwest Airlines, told the Wall Street Journal that March 2020 was the longest month of his life, that every day was substantially worse than the previous day. The survival of airlines does not only depend on whether they are profitable. Some airlines are subsidized by their national governments, and this was before COVID hit. In some ways, though, every airline is subsidized, whether it is the fact that kerosene is not taxed or that the taxpayer pays for the construction of airports and the transportation links to the airports, or the much-discussed subsidies of Airbus and Boeing, which help them build the planes that airlines can afford to purchase or lease. 
Patrick, you may remember that Ryanair actually went to court on this. Staying in the tourism space, Irish low-cost carrier Ryanair scored two major victories. Europe's general court on Wednesday annulled support given to KLM of the Netherlands. This, though, is the first victory for Ryanair, which has filed 16 challenges to state aid approval, arguing that the bailouts give these mostly national carriers an unfair advantage. Others have been held up as examples of national governments bending the rules to support their national carriers. Because instead of the governments treating all airlines equally, they are massively subsidizing the state aid junkies, such as Lufthansa and Air France. Alitalia has been renationalized, an airline that has never made money for 74 years. Why aren't all of the airlines, Ryanair is the biggest airline in Italy, EasyJet I think is the number three airline. We don't want state aid, but we would like to see significant reductions in the municipal taxes and the airport charges in Italy instead of massive doses of state aid, crack cocaine to Alitalia. Is Alitalia unique? Alitalia is unique. There will always be an Italian solution to an Italian problem. In the EU, there are clear rules around state subsidies. The intention is that you don't distort competition. Italy has always come up with a novel solution. Alitalia was acquired by the Italian post office. It was a acquired by the Italian rail network. It was acquired by a consortium of Italian banks. So they've always managed to skate around the very limits. And at times have crossed it, you know, without question, there has been illegal state aid to uh, Alitalia, but the Italian government have always felt that it's necessary to support it. We just learned that Alitalia would uh, seize operations on October 14th to be replaced by ITA. Since July, ITA has been slowly purchasing or leasing Alitalia assets to start its own operations. There have been plenty of cases where national governments have decided not to support their airlines, and we've seen those airlines fail. And what we've seen is that you know, the industry today will fill the gap. If there's demand for services, efficient airlines will replace the inefficient. We want to ensure that there is a framework, that there are laws that... Uh, regulate what can and can't be done. And so long as people comply with the law, then I don't think we can complain. But it's when you know one is benefited over another, that's when I think you do have to question whether it is right. And in many cases, in fact, in, in nearly in all cases, you will find that it is not right and it is not fair and consumers don't benefit. And often it's driven by a political agenda rather than an economic uh, agenda. And then the politics and the economics don't always uh, align. But government subsidies of airlines come in many forms. Transport and Environment, which claims to be Europe's leading clean transport campaign group, stated in 2019 that 24% of Ryanair airports are likely to be propped up by subsidies, fueling rapid emissions growth. Such state aid is helping drive the airline's growth, potentially breaches EU state aid rules, and faces being ruled illegal. T&E stated that the EU should end state aid like it did for the coal mines earlier. To get through the COVID crisis, EasyJet raised 5.5 billion pounds, part of that through selling and leasing back some of its planes, by taking a COVID loan from the British government and by issuing new shares. The CEO of EasyJet Switzerland, Johan Lundgren, said that EasyJet had asked for support from the Swiss government, but were refused. In a recent article, he stated that other airlines, for example, Air France KLM, 
had received upwards of 10 billion euros in state aid. And he questioned why the unhealthy airlines were being helped out. He asked why his should be punished for being managed well, and whether it was right to prioritize airlines that might not survive. These are huge issues. Our Swiss pilot, Andrea Ufer, looking at this from 30,000 feet, suggested that maybe we won't be talking about the pandemic in 10 years. But for the airlines now, as we all know, COVID has been disastrous. Earlier this year, in an IMD alumni webinar, we heard from a representative of Swiss International Airlines that in June 2020, Swiss was losing 1 million euros a day. In January 2021, they were at only 10% of the passenger flights that they'd had one year earlier. He estimated that as of February 2021, the airline industry had lost 1 million jobs since the start of the pandemic. When someone in the alumni audience mentioned that he'd still seen planes flying overhead back in February, the response was surprising. Much of what you've seen in the sky this past year has been cargo planes. Swiss even retrofitted some passenger planes to carry cargo. Transporting freight has kept the airline alive during this period. Apart from Alitalia, it appears that most of the airlines will survive, though they'll be saddled with debt. Have they used this crisis as an opportunity to change their impact on the environment? We asked Thomas Vellicott, CEO of WWF Switzerland, if he felt the airlines were making an effort. I think more and more airlines are thinking about how are we going to operate in a net zero carbon world. Um, but in the past, that just wasn't the case. There was a lot of greenwashing around just things like, you know, well, we've, we've got more modern planes, so per passenger mile, we're actually um, uh, emitting less CO2 emissions. Well, if you're on a massive growth spree, that, you know, the planet doesn't really care about that. So, <laughs> but I think things are changing there. Patrick, a few weeks ago, you and I discussed the interview that Kara Swisher of the New York Times did with Doug Parker, the CEO of American Airlines. To me, it was blatantly clear that he did not see any major improvements coming in aviation environmental practices. When he was asked about innovation, he mentioned improving the check-in areas at the airports, beefing up their app, and hopefully buying more sustainable aviation fuel, SAF, in the coming years. I was not impressed. Jim, it's not just American Airlines. I remember the quote from Luis Gallego of IAG, the parent company of British Airways and Iberia, who said, with the right policy measures, 10% of global jet fuel can be replaced with sustainable aviation fuel by 2030. To me, this does not sound like the airlines get it. In that same article you just mentioned from the World Economic Forum, Boeing's Brian Moran says, if there's a silver bullet to decarbonizing aviation, it's sustainable aviation fuels. Patrick, I hope we'll find hope in our next episode when we talk with venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. SAF is the future, eventually, but why wait for it? Already today, there has been criticism that airlines don't pay tax on the kerosene that they burn, and that this gives them an unfair advantage over other forms of transport. It's not that we don't pay it. Under international law, so agreed by politicians, not by airlines, 
there is no tax on international aviation fuel. The other point I would make is airlines pay in full for their infrastructure. Mm. Uh, you know, you don't pay in full for the infrastructure you use as uh, somebody who's driving on the road. And in many cases, rail network is heavily subsidized, for example. So there are different models. And I, I've no issue having a fair system. So long as it's fair and equal, I don't have a problem with that. But airlines fund all of the infrastructure that they use. Road transport users don't do that. Airlines and aircraft are absolutely necessary for our modern way of life. Without Airbus and Boeing, without Delta, EasyJet, Lufthansa and Singapore Airlines, without JFK, Changi and Heathrow, our world would be completely different, at least for those of us who can fly. To help reduce the impact on climate change, we have choices in some areas of our lives. For example, there are viable substitute for eating meat. But for getting to the other side of the world in a reasonable amount of time, should flying be looked at more like a utility? We all agree that everyone has the right to good education, reasonably priced electricity and clean water. Should we consider regulating the airline industry in the same way? With or without even more regulation, can the airline industry change drastically to meet the obvious and urgent need to decarbonize now, not just in 2050? As of March 2021, American Airlines had almost 900 planes, with 200 more on order. United Airlines, with 828 aircraft, was number two, and it grew its fleet in 2020 rather than shrinking like most airlines, and has 270 more planes ordered from Airbus and Boeing as well as 200 electric planes on order from Hart Aerospace in Sweden. China Southern has over 600 planes. Decarbonizing a massive fleet seems more difficult than changing planes in a small fleet. But then, large airlines have resources to do so. Small airlines, maybe not. As of May 2021, Boeing has almost 500 unfilled orders for its Boeing 787 Dreamliner a new generation of aircraft with considerably higher fuel efficiency. It is obvious that airlines expect to grow a lot. According to a 2021 report by Oliver Wyman Consultancy, almost 28,000 passenger aircraft were in service in 2020. For 2026, the estimated number of aircraft will be almost 32,000. Even during the pandemic, airlines are preparing for growth. This means fuel-efficient planes are added to fleets, but inefficient ones are not retired fast enough. That is a lot of planes, a huge installed base, if you will, and very dispersed across owners, countries, and regulatory bodies. Can major change happen without retiring these aircraft? Leasing contracts have been signed, huge investments have been made, so we can't just park those 27,000 planes in the Mojave Desert and start over again. How likely is it that innovation will happen fast with aircraft? We'll talk about that more in our next episode. Maybe innovation and the move to net zero will happen faster than we think, Jim. India's largest airlines, Indigo, published its first-ever Environment Social Governance Report to showcase its efforts in sustainable aviation, 
On the to-do list to cut carbon emissions, Indigo said that it is exploring the potential of using sustainable aviation fuel. In the July 30th issue of India's Business Standard, the giant law firm Becky McKenzie argued that investors will increasingly favor aviation businesses with high ESG ratings, signaling more resilience and creating long-term business bets. Similarly, Roberto Alvo, the CEO of Latin, the largest airline in South America, told Bloomberg that airlines will invest strongly in technology and develop in a more sustainable way, more environment-friendly, with less CO2 emissions and less waste. In our third episode, we spoke of airports as portals, transporting us from one world to another. The airports are where we enter the portal, but it is the airlines that bring us to new worlds, new people, and new experiences. Without the airlines, we would be more likely to fall prey to the prejudice and narrow-mindedness that Mark Twain spoke of at the beginning of this episode. We need the airlines. Whether you believe the airlines get it or not, and whether you feel that the 3.5% of passenger aviation's impact on global warming is worth worrying about, there is change afoot. In our next episode, we'll talk with entrepreneurs and investors who believe that change must happen and the aviation industry is a great place to invest. Thank you for being with us. You've been listening to Should I Fly? Written and presented by me, Patrick Reinmuller. And me, Jim Polcrano. We are a production of IMD Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland, one of the world's leading providers of insights and education for executives. To find out more about the school and to read our new magazine, I by IMD, follow the links in the show notes of this episode. Thanks for listening and see you next time.